Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe. Rightly dividing the Word of God, reading it in context, applying it the way that God wants to, comparing Scripture to Scripture, being like good Bereans who receive the Word of God with all joy, but search the Scriptures to find out whether or not these things are true. Now, if you have a question about the Bible, about prophecy, um, nuances about Christian living, then you can write it in the comment section. Put a uh, question mark or, or the word question in front of it, and then write out your comment. Reread it a couple times, make sure that it makes sense and it says what you want it to say, and then go ahead and submit it. We'll take a look at it <clears throat> over the next hour. Our first question comes from our Bible study that we're in now, and I was going to talk about whether or not America was Mystery Babylon. And then I found another question about whether or not there's a coming economic boom that is foretold in the Bible. And there is, and it's in when you study Mystery Babylon. Now, Mystery Babylon is one of the most contentious areas that you can find in all of, of Scripture. You can People get more upset about it. And they want to talk about, you know, everybody wants to, to be right about who it is. It's a rebuilt Babylon. It's New York City. It's the Vatican. It's Rome. It's America. Um, it is a Mecca or Medina. Um, it's the line, the new city that Saudi Arabia is building. And what you need to do is go back and look at 16, 17, 17, 18, and half of 19 in the book of Revelation. When, and then, and then cross-reference that to scriptures in the Old Testament about the city of Babylon, because Babylon is the second most mentioned city in the Bible, except for Jerusalem, and the New Jerusalem represents where we will live for, with God forever, and Babylon represents a denial of God, a turning away from God, and wanting to live on your own from the very beginning, when Nimrod wanted to build the Tower of Babel, probably where Babylon would be under Hammurabi in 1750 BC, and later on Nebuchadnezzar 600 BC, he built it to the skies, to the heavens, that he would be able to have, do his astrology, his monthly pronostications, um, looking to the stars to be able to give them direction. He didn't want, the, they didn't want the direction from God anymore. They wanted to do things on their own. So Babylon becomes a type of being worldly, living on your own, not trusting in God, but believing that, that you can get direction from a soothsayer uh, today, a psychic, to be able to give you your future. So there's a woman who's introduced in chapter 17, and she's riding a beast. She has on purple and blue. She's got gold around her. She's obviously living luxurious, luxuriously. She's got a golden cup in her hand that is full of abominations, and she's drunk on the blood of the saints, and the world commits fornication with her. On her head is written, Mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots. And a, a, women in the Bible are often used in as example of worship. In Revelation, there's Jezebel. In Revelation 12, there's the woman clothed in the sun, which represents Israel. Uh, you have the bride of Christ, which are the people that follow the Lord, uh, with the, the church, and in, anyone in the Old Testament following him, I believe, will be part of the bride as well. But it is represented by a woman. So this woman represents false, false religion. And it says that the kings of the world committed fornication with her. Fornication in the Old Testament is an analogy of idolatry. 
God said of Israel, you have committed fornication under every green tree in Israel. And when you read it in context, he's talking about idolatry, even in the New Testament. It says in James, adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with this world is, is enmity with God? So when you are friends of the world, when you rely on the world, like what Babylon did, you, you become an adulterer and adulteress against God, and that's idolatry. So Mystery Babylon then is this religious center, but it's also an economic center. Some people believe that it's, it's just that there's two of them, uh, a religious Babylon and an economic Babylon. Some put in a third there, a political Babylon, but they're really just one. We know that because the last verse in chapter 17 says, the woman which you saw is the great city that ruled over the kings of the earth. She's riding the beast. The beast is the Antichrist kingdom and the Antichrist. And she's controlling them, or at least it looks like it, to get to power. And they turn on her and devour her in order to have their own religious system and economic system. Having people take the mark of the beast and worship the beast. But they've gotten to where they've gotten by, by the woman riding the beast through this economic power. Now in chapter 18, this, it shows this city's destruction. The woman is the city that ruled over the kings of the earth. That's why you can't say today it's the Vatican or it's Rome or it's the United States or Babylon being rebuilt. You can't know for sure because it rules over the nations of the world. But the merchants of the world stand at a distance and mourn because they were made rich off mystery Babylon. And then the ships of the sea stop and they look and they see the smoke rising and they throw ashes in the air and they cry and they wail because they have been made rich off of Babylon. So this city that we don't know who it is yet that's going to rise in the end brings an economic boom for the merchants and those who have ships around the world. It doesn't mean everyone's going to get rich. It means the merchants get rich. And it means those that have ships get rich. But it is a coming economic boom that is going to happen in the, the tribulation period. Maybe even leading up to the tribulation period, then the Antichrist is gonna destroy it, which is what it says in Revelation 7, that the 10 horns, with the, with the approval of the Antichrist, turn on the woman, and kill her and eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Then you get the destruction in the next chapter that talks about her living in luxury and how the merchants and those who had ships were able to get rich off of her. So the question that I had last week was, do you think that there is a coming economic boom because of the wealth of Mystery Babylon in chapter 18 of the book of Revelation? And the answer to that is yes. There's, there's several things that have to happen yet before Jesus can actually return. He can come for his church at any moment and take us to be with him, be caught in the air, as the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we know that we're not going to go through the tribulation period because we're going to be kept from the hour of testing that's coming upon the whole world. So we're going to be kept from that time. We won't go through God's wrath. But we do know that there's going to be a Gog and Magog war which although people think they know the details on it, we, I don't know that we know all the details. There's also the idea that it could be, that the Antichrist could be Islamic and Mecca could end up being Mystery Babylon. And so we don't know for sure exactly what they are until we see it. But we do know there's a Gog and Magog war. We know that the temple has to be rebuilt. And then we know that Mystery Babylon has to rise up and become an economic and a religious power that we don't see in the world today. 
we see candidates of who it could be. And this is why we don't want to be dogmatic. We don't want to always have to have a dog in the hunt. This is what I believe. I believe it's this one. I believe it's that one. Sometimes it's okay to go, I'm not sure. When I first started studying Mystery Babylon again this time, and I started getting more information about Islam, I first was kind of like, I don't think so. But the more I study it, the more I go, you know what? That's as much of a possibility as anything else. I don't think anyone knows. That's why it's called Mystery Babylon. No one knows until all of that criteria comes together. And when we see a city that is an economic power and a religious power that is ruling over the kings of the earth, then we'll know that that is who Babylon is. One more thing about it. The Bible says, God told them, get out of Babylon, my people. So whether he was talking about Israel during the tribulation period to get out of her, some believe that it is Jerusalem that is held by the, the Islamic authorities at the time, that, that is the, the mystery Babylon, uh, and that, that Israel is supposed to flee. And perhaps this is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24. I think in Luke 17, he's talking about the destruction of Rome, fleeing when that happens. But in Matthew 24, he's talking about the end of the world. When you see the abomination of desolations, then get out of it lest you, you take part uh, in, uh, in her plagues that destroy her. So, um, also it says that she, in the list of things that Mystery Babylon sells are the souls, uh, are the bodies and souls of men, which some try to play off as being labor. She sells labor, but it looks like slavery. And as much slavery as there is and as much attention as we've been getting from the sound of freedom on slavery around the world, uh, it ties in really well. So yes, there is a coming economic boom, but we don't want to be a part of it. We want to be taken out before it ever comes about and comes to pass. And I don't think you want to make any financial decisions based on the, the wealth of Mystery Babylon because all of the other horrible things that happen at the end of the age. Uh, so it's good to see you guys. Good to have you here. Uh, if uh, you have a question, then write the word question or put a question mark in front of it and then go ahead and submit your questions and we will take a look at it. Um, so we have a question from Andre. Andre, good to see you. Uh, Andre, when you're here, I just get that first question in and they're good questions. Um, concerning the um, Emmanuel prophecy, I know a small thing, but is there, um, I know it's a small thing, but is there any significance in the curds and honey portion Isaiah 7.15. Let's go ahead and take a look. So let's talk just a moment while I'm getting there about the way we see prophecy in the Old Testament and how we know that prophecy works this way. So in the New Testament, when you start to read, when, when I'm going to put you down here. Um, let's see if I am. No, no, I'm not. I'm just going to leave right there. All right. Um, in the New Testament, when you start to read Matthew, it starts to get fulfilled prophecy. It starts to say, uh, this was fulfilled, you know, by the prophets. Um, th th this happened in order to fulfill what the scriptures had said. And you get that sense that scripture is being fulfilled right away when you read it. It's a special book in that way. When you begin to read the New Testament, there's an excitement that's, that the Old Testament has been fulfilled, that prophecies have been told and fulfilled. And when you go back and you look at those prophecies, and I'm not exactly sure the right way to say it, but you see that the prophecies can be in the midst of one setting and then suddenly speak of the Messiah that cannot be fulfilled in that setting and then go back into the setting again. 
for example, when you go back to where it says, where it says, it's, this is said for the scripture to be fulfilled, uh, I, I will call my, my son out of Egypt. And you go back and you look at the prophecy, God's calling Israel out of Egypt. But in it, he's talking about Jesus coming out of Egypt as well. Uh, some have tried to call it a double fulfillment, but I don't think that's the best way to say it because it's really not a double fulfillment. It is God using existing settings to all of a sudden give prophecies by the hands of the prophets. And we know that that's the case for prophecy because we have so many prophecies in the New Testament. We know, for example, that prophecies are generally fulfilled literally. Because everyone, I think except for one in Galatians in the Bible, every prophecy is fulfilled literally. We know that they come out of settings that can be about other people when all of a sudden we get something that has to be fulfilled by somebody other than the setting. And, and that's important. And so Isaiah 7:14 is that way. I think we're talking about um, Cyrus here. Um, in verse, let me go to verse 12. I'm going to put up on the screen here for you. It says, but Ahaz said, I will ask, I, I will not ask, nor will I test. Then he said, here, O house of David, it is a small thing for you to weary men, but will, will you weary me, my God, also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now, this word for virgin, a lot's been made that it's the word for maid, like a, a maid, like a, a, like a virgin maid, and that it could just be saying a girl. And because today you could, you could have a girl who's not married and they're trying to carry it over. But in their day, a maid was, the word here was virgin. Uh, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek copy of the Old Testament that was completed 165 years before the time of Christ, it uses the word virgin here in the Septuagint. And if this, is a, if this is just a girl, it makes no sense. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a girl shall conceive and bear a son. Why is that a sign? And why is it a behold? It has to be a virgin. And bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Now we go back to the New Testament, and it says this was to fulfill what the scriptures had said. And here it is, that a, that a woman would conceive, and it would be God with us, which is what Emmanuel means. It says, curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people. So when I'm looking back at this, and this is my understanding of this passage, um, Andre, is that when you're looking back at this, and you're reading it, there's a setting, and then all of a sudden there's a messianic prophecy that is given that cannot be fulfilled in any other way except through the Messiah. And you find this pattern throughout the Old Testament, and you find it, you find it um, spoken of in the New Testament, that these are the fulfilled passages. So when you're looking around a passage, and, and you also find this kind of, this thing happening as well when the Bible talks about Satan in uh, Isaiah uh, 14, in Ezekiel 28. You've got a letter written to a king, and then all of a sudden it's talking about the powers behind the king. Same thing in, in, in both of those places. So you find that oftentimes, out of the setting, God gives us more information. 
from the Old Testament. And that's my understanding on this. So, I don't know that we necessarily need to say the curds and the honey really mean anything other than he's a child who's growing and he's going he's gonna to eat curds and honey and he's going to come to a certain amount of knowledge. I don't know that we have to take everything else in that passage and try to line it up because of the way that prophecy works. Now, God can, can write prophecy any way that he wanted to. He could have wrote it saying, I'm going to give you prophecy and this is going to happen and that's going to happen. But God wrote it in the midst of settings and then gave us something that was an impossibility of virgin conceiving and having a child and being God with us. All right. So hopefully that's um, helpful. If you have any more questions about that, Andre, um, then I would uh, take a follow-up question on it. I appreciate it. Uh, we have a question from Jari. Um, had Jesus been stoned by the Jews like Stephen, would be still have died? Would he still have died for the entire world <clears throat> as a savior, just as the Jews think? Um, so I'm not sure what the last part of this means, Jari. The Savior, just as the Jews think, he would die for the entire world. Um, so hypotheticals like questions like this are really almost impossible to look at because God was going to bring these things about. God in his sovereignty was going to bring Jesus dying on the cross as the Lamb of God to fulfill what the Scripture said. And when you run into God's sovereignty, God gives men choice. And sometimes the choice works with God's sovereignty. And sometimes God does his sovereignty and, and, and you run into a wall. And God is so sovereign, he will get his work done. And so because of the Old Testament passages, there was no way he, were, he was going to be stoned. And now you could say, well, he, they weren't going to stone him anyway because they were afraid of him. They were afraid of the people. Jesus had been ministering for three years. Stephen had not. Jesus had had influenced so many people, raised people from the dead. Stephen did signs and wonders, but had not have, and, and was able to debate with the synagogue of the freedmen, but he didn't have the position or status that Jesus had. And they tried to stone Jesus earlier in, I think it was Nazareth, but he slipped out between them. So he wasn't going to let that happen. So there's just no way for us to answer those kind of hypothetical questions. What we do know is that God foretold that the Lamb of God was going to die for the world. We see a, a picture of it in um, Genesis 22, where Abraham is told, to his being tested by God and to go sacrifice his son, and he does it, and it's accredited to him righteousness as as he believes God. It's not the 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 act of getting ready to sacrifice his son; it's works that saves him. But it, that he believed God enough to do it, that it was accounted to him as righteousness, and. Um, so all of those things pictured to Jesus dying on Mount Moriah, <clears throat> being the Lamb of God. It's through the shed blood that our sins are forgiven. He had to become a curse. Uh, the last passage in the Old Testament talks about um, those who are cursed. And um, Jesus had to become a curse for us so that we could be set free. So all of these things are very detailed and nuanced and God was going to bring them about. And there's no way that he was going to be, that he was going to be, that he was going to be stoned instead of crucified. 
uh, it was going to happen the way that God had determined for it to happen. This is part of the sovereignty of God. I think we all have free will, but I think sometimes we run into the sovereignty of God. And this is really important. When I say sovereignty, I mean sovereignty different than what a um, Calvinist would say it. A Calvinist would say that sovereignty means God determines it. Whatever God wants, whatever God wants, he does. Yes, but God doesn't do things the way we do them. And so sometimes God's working behind the scenes, causing all things to work together for the good. And God's not causing the evil. God created a world where people had a choice and could choose to do evil, but he can't be attributed to the evil. And um, so we can ask, you know, you can ask those questions throughout the Bible. You know, what if David would have died when he was fighting Goliath? You know, so, but that's not what happened. And it's not what God was going to allow happen. And had it happened, I guess things would have happened differently. But you can ask those kind of questions and they're hard to answer, but not just only are they hard to answer, it's, it's almost impossible to come up with an answer to them. So, um, Hunter Wilson says, um, when you come into Sierra Vista, Pastor, hopefully soon. Um, I don't know, what, what, it's been six months or so since I've been down there to teach. And um, Pastor Pat Lazovich is there, a good friend. So, yeah, um, hopefully, hopefully soon. All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's. Uh, if you're visiting here with us for the first time today, really glad to have you here. If you have a question, then write the word question down and um, then put your question and reread it a couple times. Make sure it makes sense. You know, you could be very careful when you write something out and then go back to check it and realize that you put that instead of the. So just go reread it a couple of times, make sure it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit it. All right? So Jari has a, a follow-up on Mystery Babylon. I know we can't know for sure, but what do you think the religion is in your opinion? False Christianity, deceiving the elect, Islam, atheism, secular, etc. Yeah, I don't think it's atheism. I don't think it's secularism. It's a religion. And um, it includes the things that it says that Babylon did in her youth, which were sorceries, enchantments, which is spells, um, having wise men. I'm, I'm getting this passage out of Isaiah, where it says a monthly prognosticator, stargazers, uh, people that tell you know, the future through the zodiac. So I think that's included in it. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure that Islam would, would do that. So that might be a, a kind of a strike against that. But I just don't think we know enough now. And I think that we, just because Babylon did that in our youth, does that mean that that's what the last world religion is going to be? Or will it be something different? Um, I have always leaned towards the revived Roman Empire. And because I believe that the church is going to be taken out before the tribulation period, you have the Vatican and what is left being ungodly and there's enough ungodliness in Catholicism today. There's enough ungodliness in Catholicism without us throwing any more at them. They, they, uh, they believe the basics about Jesus. Now, if they believe they're being saved by the sacraments, that's a problem. If they believe they're being saved by having faith in Christ, then they're saved. And I know Catholics who are genuinely saved because they made a commitment to Christ. And so they will be brought up to Christ and what's left will be the tares in the Vatican. Um, and out of that, I think that fits really well to me. It says in Daniel chapter 7, excuse me, Daniel chapter 9, 
that the prince of the people who destroy the city will make a covenant with many for one week. Now, one week is seven years there. That's the context, by the way. I'm not just making things up. The context of Daniel 9 is weeks of years. They had for weeks of years, for 490 years, they hadn't given the land rest. So they owed the land 70 years. They were kept in captivity and God gives them another vision of 70 weeks of years, 490 years. And then the last week, there's a gap before it. And the, the prince of the, the prince of the ones who destroy the city will make a covenant with many for one week. This is before Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome. So it would need to be Roman. It would be connected to Rome. Now, people will say it's Islam because of Constantinople. So Rome was divided into two different sections, the East and the West. And Rome, the city ruled over the West and Constantinople and Turkey ruled over the East. And then Constantinople kept on going and Rome and in the Western side died away. So many believe that that could be a reference still to the people who destroyed the city because Roman armies weren't just made up of Romans. There were Assyrians, there were, there were different kinds of people that were involved in it. So when I first heard, and, and you know, this might be true with anything that you first hear. It's like when you're a kid and all you eat is hot dogs and somebody tries to tell you, look, a hamburger's good. You gotta try it. And you're like, no, I just want my hot dog. It's kind of like we learn things then when someone says, have you ever considered that it might be Islam, the Antichrist might be Islamic, and Saudi Arabia might be where the city for Babylon is that makes the world rich because they're wealthy, and then the Antichrist is going to turn against her to destroy Islam and the economic system that gets the world rich. And I've started to think more about that and think that is possible. I almost... I don't think it's America and New York City. I don't think it's rebuilt Babylon because the Bible says it's not going to be rebuilt. And right now it's a, uh, a protected site. So I don't think it's going to be Babylon rebuilt. I think, um, let's see, what are the other what are the other options that are out there What people say? Um, Jerusalem, which would be the Islamic aspect as well because the Jews would have been taken out of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is called uh, the great city. That great, and when the two witnesses are killed in Revelation chapter 11, it says, and their body lay for three and a half days in that great city, which is spiritually called Egypt and Sodom. And then in Daniel, in Revelation 18, the great city is destroyed. So if you're just looking for the places where the great city is mentioned in the book of, of Romans, excuse me, Revelation, I don't know where Romans comes in, um, then it's there. All right. So um, thank you for your follow-up. Ajari, I do appreciate that. Uh, we have a question from Brendan. Brendan says, hey, brother, do you think uh, we should celebrate pastors? Some churches have Pastor Appreciation Month or a service dedicated to celebrating the pastor. Um, I don't like it. Now, just because I don't like it doesn't mean that churches shouldn't do it. Um, the pastor is a servant. And he is also a co-pastor with Christ, who should be the one who was celebrated and lifted up. So, um, I appreciate um, Pastor Appreciation Month as a pastor. People will come up to me and say, hey, it's Pastor Appreciation Month, and I just want to say thank you for all the work that you put into feeding us. And, and you know, they encourage me. And trust me, all pastors need encouragement. There's a lot of things that are said that are, are mean, and heartless. 
I could not, many of you guys know that I, I lost my late wife in 2012, and I can't tell you the mean things people said during that time. Just, it's just unbelievable. Some of the things people will write and say and, and uh, getting encouragement can be a good thing. They say, and who knows how true this is, but they say for every discouraging thing you hear, you have to hear 10 positive things. And But what you hear is 10 discouraging things and one positive thing. So I appreciate the encouragement I always do. And I, and I like to respond when someone says something like that to thank you for the encouragement because it is encouraging to me for that. So I think that's what we should do is, is appreciate the pastors. Celebrate the pastor. I don't like the word celebrate. Celebrate good times. Come on. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I don't like the word celebrate. And that's just me. Now, if other churches want to have pastor's celebration service and they want to celebrate their pastor, they can do what they want to do. Um, I don't like it. Um, we don't even acknowledge Pastor Appreciation Month from the pulpit. Um, because we're, quite frankly, we're just too busy doing the work, giving people chances to get saved. We're preaching the, the Word of God. We're looking for application. We're bringing the truth. God's Word sets people free. And so we just want to focus on those things. And um, I do appreciate our pastors that are on staff, not just me, but I appreciate them, and I would appreciate any encouragement you guys uh, can give them as well. All right, so we have a follow-up from Kimberly. Kimberly says, uh, Empress Kimberly says, follow up, couldn't selling the bodies and souls of men be false religion, sort of like um, transhumanism or paying for someone's sins to get them out of purgatory? Um, let me just see if I can find the passage. <clears throat> um, I don't, I don't think that you could there might be something in the passage that would allow you to be able to look at it that way. But remember, we're bound by certain aspects of the context for what we believe about a passage. And so we have to look at it in that context and not, and not, uh, yeah, the body of the soul Okay, so I found it. I found it right away, which is shocking. So we're bound by the context. And if you take something that's said and you bring up something that you teach as being right and it's not in the context and it's you can't find cross-references to it, we call that doing violence to the text. So we have a text in front of us and we need to cover it and we need to apply it to people the best way we can. And when you take it and you get it out of context and you start applying, that's doing violence to the text. And so you're looking for something in the text that would tell you that selling the bodies, the souls, body and souls of men would be false religion or would be transhumanism or would be paying for someone else's sins. So let me go ahead and put this up on the screen here and I'll show you the context of this. So it's talking about the destruction of, of, of Babylon, both the religious and economic systems. It says here, and the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver. Now, the gold and silver represents gold and silver. Precious stones represents precious stones. Pearls, pearls, fine linen, fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, and cinnamon, and incense, fragrant oil, frankincense, wine, and oil, fine flour, and wheat, 
cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and the bodies of the souls of bodies and souls of men. Now, here's what you wouldn't do. You wouldn't go back and go, frankincense, wine, and oil is literal. Fine flour and wheat is literal. Cattle and sheep is literal. Horses and chariots are literal. Bodies and, this, um, bodies and souls of men aren't literal. This is them joining another religion, or this is, you know, humanism in some way, or this is, that's what you wouldn't do. You want to keep it in its context. And the way that one thing is presented, if you don't do that, you are doing violence to the text. And that's just, you know, it's basic hermeneutics. You got to look around you. You got to look at the text to see. Um, if we were looking at a list of things that were analogies for the cattle and the sheep, then we could go, oh, well, the cattle and the sheep meant this. So the souls, the bodies, the souls of men mean this. But it's all very literal. They're selling the bodies and the souls of men, which, I mean, this is Mystery Babylon, right? So this could be sex trafficking. It could be the sex trade. Uh, it, it could be, yeah, it could be any of the stuff that's going on today um, around the world and seems to be growing and they get rich off of it. It's definitely torrid just in the way that it's, it could be men who are just slaves. There are many slaves in the world today. Slavery is not over yet. It says the fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you. Now he's talking to the merchants and all the things are, which are rich and splendid have gone from you and you shall find them no more at all. So I don't think it can be looked at that way, Kimberly. I, I think that we have to come back and go, what does the text say? And then how can we look at that? Otherwise, we get ourselves into trouble. We're trying to, to, to keep our, our study of the Bible in an, an area that it's truthful because you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If I start taking all of these things and go, well, let's look at cattle and how cattle is used around the Bible and the cattle means something else, the chances that I'm going to be wrong have greatly increased. But if I take it literal, when it is literal, then my chances of being right are much better. When it, the text uses it as an allegory and the text will tell you that, you'll see it there. And I'm not saying that it's 100% clear either way all the time, because sometimes it's not. But th this is clear, that the gold, the silver, all of the things are talking about riches. And part of these riches are the bodies and the souls of humans that are being sold by them. All right. So uh, thank you, Kimberly. I really appreciate that. Um, and Kimberly Fox has a question. Kimberly, good to see you. She says, question, I know you have, oh, let me do this. Let me get to this screen. And then let me put you back up there, Kimberly, all right? All right, here we go. Um, oops, that's not the right one. Let me get to the right one here. Here we go. There we go. All right, we're ready now, Kimberly, all right? Question, I know you have discussed this before, but can you please clear up um, election and predestination and free will? I see a pastor say 80% predestination, 20% free will. Makes no sense. Thoughts? Yeah, makes no sense. I, I, don't, I don't see how that could be applied in any way, shape, or form. It is either God chooses people before the world was formed with reasons that we don't know. You're going to hell, you're going to heaven, you're going to hell, you're going to heaven. You're a vessel of dishonor, you're a vessel of honor. Okay? Or 
God says, those who believe will be vessels of honor and those who don't believe will be vessels of dishonor. So that's the only two ways that you can read Romans chapter 9. Now I know that the that, that Calvinists have grabbed on to Romans chapter 9 and say that they have the answers to what's happening there. But remember when it says, Esau I have loved and Jacob I have hated, you go to the Old Testament and it's talking about the people of Esau and who Israel became as following God. So Esau I had hated was that the people became wicked from Edom, which were the descendants of Esau. And Israel at that point was loved by God. And I think he was loved even when God had rejected them and sent them into Babylon. But he's talking about peoples. He's not talking about individuals. And so then they carry it over to being individuals. Well, God hates individuals. God hated that person. God hates you, but doesn't hate you. So this person is chosen and can't be saved. And the, the terminology that's used is irresistible grace. The person that can't be saved, the person that is saved has irresistible grace. The grace is going to be upon them no matter what. Nothing they can do about it. And um, to them, there's something meritorious. There's something non-meritorious about that. You just got it. You just receive God's grace. So when they say, you don't understand God's grace, they're simply saying, God just chooses people that haven't even chosen him. And that's, that's, that's God doing it. However, when you go back to the choosing of that person before the foundations of the world, why were they chosen? And they're going to say, well, we don't know. When, when we use the word, um, when we say that they were unilaterally chosen, they don't like that. Or that God just chose arbitrarily, they don't like that. So if you believe that the, those that had irresistible grace had some merit, then you believe that they were chosen by God for a reason, then now God's choosing people because of their character and not everybody is the same totally depraved, which fights against another part of Calvinism. And then there's the limited atonement that there, and this, you can't be backed up by the scriptures, by the way. The Bible never says Jesus died for some. It's not that it's limited. There's just no place it ever says anything about being limited. It is the hardest thing to defend in Calvinism. And so limited atonement is you can't be saved. God didn't choose you. Now they say that when I believe and I'm saved and someone else says I can't believe, they say that I'm saying I have merit. That's meritorious that I believe. But I'm not. Because believing is receiving. It's nothing meritorious about it. If I receive a gift on Christmas, tell me how I earned that gift. If I received a gift from God, but I received it and somebody doesn't receive it, it just means they didn't receive it. They're not being punished because they didn't receive it. They're being punished because of their sins that the gift would have stopped and taken care of. So let's go take a look here at um, Romans chapter 9. I want to get near, I'm going near the end of this, and it gives the reasons that God chooses, the reasons some are elect. And... Um, Let's see, let me get to the right place here. All right, let's start here. We're going to start in verse 27. This is almost the end of the chapter, which is oftentimes where those who are quoting this will go to. Um, and so here it says, verse 27, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. 
And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of the Sabbath left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been like Gomorrah. So he's talking about Israel being the elect of God out of the Old Testament. And even though it's turned to believing, there's going to be a remnant that are going to be saved. Then he says this, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith. So the Gentiles by faith receive righteousness. That's what, that's what verse 30 says. And then verse 31, but Israel pursuing the law works had not attained to righteousness. Why? Verse 32, because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion, a stumbling stone or rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So what's the context of the passage? Believes on him, seeking him by faith. The Jews not seeking by faith. Now he's telling us that God's going to save, save a remnant of the Jews no matter what. But, but whatever, I don't know what he's trying to understand. Um, getting your mind around exactly what Calvinism is saying can be difficult. And so to say something like 80% are predestined, are predestination and another 20% are free will is just, you can't apply it that way. You can't do it. It is... It is God who did the work. I can't jump high enough to be saved, Kimberly. I can't do anything to be saved. I can't do any work to be saved. So God did all the work. Salvation is all him. I am depraved in the sense that I have sin that will damn me to be separated from God forever if I don't come to him by faith. And when I come to him by faith and believe in him, He's done the work. I received the free gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and now I'm saved. There was not 80% predestination, 20% choice. It was God doing everything and me reaching out and saying, yes, I want it. And someone else rejecting it. Um, the evidence for a God who created our universe is so strong. And this is what Romans gets into when it talks about those who willingly forget and those who, who have creation, but they reject God anyway, it's just so strong that they end up rejecting what God wants because they do not love the truth nor the things of the truth that's in them. And um, no, you can't divide Calvinism that way. And you can't divide free choice that way. Um, even when you look at the predestination passages, like, and let me go here because, okay, the predestination passages, we're talking about predestination because 80% predestination. But let's just go to, um, to Ephesians chapter 1. Let's take a look at what is one of the, this again is like Romans 9 is a passage that the Calvinists use. So, Kimberly, let's go here and let's look at predestination and see what it says here about it. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus. The letter is written to the faithful. What does faithful mean? Don't think they're like faithfully serving God and they're not sinning. They are faithful. They have believed. They've trusted in Christ. Grace and peace to you from God and Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Who? The faithful who believed and came to him. 
in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Who? The faithful. The faithful were chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world. And you can mock this um, like Tim Chandler does. You know, God's looking down the tunnel of time and sees you making a decision for Christ and chooses you way back before the world began. Hey, look, a, a, a lot of those who believe in free will will bail out of it when they're being mocked like that. I don't think it works that way. I think God created time and that before God, before he laid the foundations of the world, he knew immediately who would follow him. And so he chose me. What does it mean he chose me? He chose me to do good works. He chose me to do the things he's called me to do. That we, the good works that we had been chosen beforehand, the Bible says, to, to follow in. So God has chosen good works for me. So he says, um, he has chosen us for the foundations of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So we are chosen by believing in him to be holy and without blame, having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. It's God's good pleasure to give, uh, to give all of these things to the faithful. The subject of all of this has never changed from to the faithful in Christ who, and then it says, God did all of these things too. To the praise and the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made abound towards us in his wisdom and his prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed himself that is, the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and are on the earth. All right, so there's other passages that talk about predestination that we could go look at that would help us to understand it. Uh, you just can't, it, it can't be 80% predestination, 20%. I think by saying that, you're kind of sounding. It's almost like, so Calvinists can be very mean and they can, they can t tear you down and act like you don't know the word of God. I had one tell me one time, read the book of Ephesians and you'll understand. And I'm like, I've been a pastor for 30 years. I've taught the book of Ephesians. You think I haven't read the book of Ephesians? And you think me reading it again is going to change my mind about, about salvation? Being by God's determining before the... Uh, unilaterally who say before the foundation of the world, which is never said. That's what they read into it. It says we're chosen before the foundations of the world. They read in unilaterally before the world begins. But it doesn't say that. That God chose us and is choosing, the reason for his choosing in that particular case isn't said. The reason for his choosing in Daniel chapter 9 is said for sure. All right. So thank you very much. Um, was that, uh, that was a question from Kimberly? Yeah, am I right? I didn't go to someone else, did I? Um, uh, yes, thank you very much, Kimberly. All right, and um, looks like Jari has another follow-up. He says, I think it's false Christianity because of the new apostolic reform. Yes, they mean well trying to oh, um, oppose uh, gay, but they are doing it political, I think this is the false. Yeah, um, how, how, how is the new apostolic reformed ruling over the kings of the earth? 
and how are you going to get them there? So let me just show you this verse here, Jari, uh, and, and just how is this going to happen? So this is, this is Revelation 17, verse 18. And the woman who you saw is the great, that great city. Now the great city is going to be destroyed in the next chapter, which reigns over the kings of the earth. So how does the new apostolic reformed reign over the, and how are they the city that's going to end up being destroyed? This is why Rome and the Vatican, after the church has been taken to be with the Lord, makes sense. This is why Islam and um, and Saudi Arabia, maybe maybe Mecca, maybe Medina, Medin, um, see these places. That's why it makes sense because you can see how they could rule over the earth. Rome has already done that. Rome has ruled over the kings of the earth and through an Islamic caliphate, Islam wants to. It's one of the reasons that I would reject America as being it because although New York is an economic center, I don't see America ruling over the, the, men, the, the kings of the earth. Now, maybe it'll happen. Right? I mean, things can happen fast and change. And the next thing you know, we're in this economic boom and the United States is in a position where they're ruling over the world. Maybe. But I can't see how the new apostolic reformed would be it. I just think we got to be, we want to keep things in their proper place. False doctrine is false doctrine. And when we go and say, well, that false doctrine is, you know, the whore of Babylon. Now, now we're, we're crossing lines that I'm not sure we want to cross. Instead of just simply saying, look, heresy is a work of the flesh. And these people are teaching heresy. And so we reject them as the work of the flesh, not the leading of the Holy Spirit. So I'm with you on where they're at. But as far as being the, the, the harlot, the whore that sits on the beast, no. I can't see how that would happen. How is new apostolic reform going to drive the beast, ride the beast? She's riding the beast, which is the world, the revived world empire and the Antichrist. I, I just don't see how that influence could be, could, could come about. All right. Thanks, Jari. I appreciate that. Um, we have a question from Vivian. Vivian says, um, I heard a TikTok said, Hell doesn't yet exist. I can't recall how the person backed it up or the verse they used, but I thought it was odd. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so um, hell, as in a lake of fire, doesn't have anybody in it right now because the lake of fire is, is brought up at the, at the very end. So we're almost there in Revelation, which we're studying on Wednesday nights now. And so then when we have the resurrection of the dead, which is called the second death, and the books are opened and they are judged, they are thrown into the lake of fire. And Satan, the false prophet, and the Antichrist are thrown into the lake of fire and they're tormented forever. And it said the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Um, so this is the way I would put it. If I were doing a TikTok, which I don't do, but if I were, I would say no one is in hell. I'd be kind of a little bit of a, the shock, right? No one's in hell. Nobody at all. They're in a holding place now. 
that is a place of torment. The rich man looking up, seeing Abraham being in torment said, send him over here to dip his hands in some water and refresh my tongue for I am in torment over here. So there is a holding place, the grave, Sheol, if you would, from the Old Testament, but that will be thrown into the lake of fire in, at one time. But the lake of fire doesn't have anybody in it right now. So that is exactly what the TikTok person meant, and I would agree with them. Now, does the lake of fire exist? Maybe. But maybe at that point I'm being too pedantic, right? Too exact. What they mean is, is that no one's in it. And they're right in by saying that. No, no one is in it because no one has been thrown into the lake of fire yet. All right, God, um, if, you have a, if you have a question, a follow-up on that, Vivian, uh, I would love to answer that. We have a question from Albert. Albert says, um, hello, Pastor. Albert, good to see you. I read a book from David Jeremiah. Oh, I read a book from David Jeremiah where he said, the buying and selling of men speaks to human trafficking, which is what I think as well, but which will be widespread. Just wanted to know your thoughts. Thank you, Pastor. Yes, that's exactly what I think. I think it's I think it's slavery, and um, human trafficking is part of slavery. So, if if you take all of the people that are enslaved in the world today, there are more enslaved for labor than there are for human trafficking. I don't know what the percentage is. I wouldn't even know how to find those numbers. But you have a great number of people in the Congo today enslaved to make cobalt. They can be called nothing else but slaves. Cobalt we need in our phones and in our bat and in batteries. And and so um, this mandate that by whatever day, 3030 or whatever, we're gonna all be driving um, EV cars. Has some wickedness in it. We get, until we get to the Congo, find some other way to get co- to get cobalt. Um, Elon Musk went and bought non-slavery cobalt from somewhere so that he could say he didn't have them. And Apple has done the same thing. However, all you're doing is sending because you buy the non-slavery cobalt. Now you send other people to the 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 cobalt. You look virtuous, but how virtuous is it? Uh, instead, there should be. There should be some lines drawn. Maybe we're not ready to get off of oil yet because of the, the, the slavery. Now, those who are so caught up in, in a green earth, they're willing to have slavery in order to have a green earth. Man, that's just a problem. So look up the Congo and cobalt mining and the things that are happening there. All right? So I agree with him 100%, Albert. I think David Jeremiah is right. By the way, I love him. I think he's awesome. He's on our radio. He's on Reach Radio. Um, you can catch him every day on Reach Radio. You can download the app, Reach Radio FM. Um, it's um, it's Calvary Tucson's radio station here in Tucson, 106.7. Uh, the Word of God going out, worship in the Word of God. All right. So we have a follow-up question. What do I got here? Five minutes. Got enough time. Kimberly. Um, Kimberly says, is it possible that God knows regardless that that person will never come to him. Yes. Yes, I, I believe that. God knows all things. The Bible makes it clear. There isn't anything that God doesn't know. Now, there are people who believe that God doesn't know the future, but, but God knows what people are going to do. 
and he knows whether or not a person is going to reject them forever. Now, is God's choosing to make them believe? So when I think of that, and then I think, sounds hopeless, but, but Jesus said, ask and it will be given, you will be given, seek it, you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. And you don't receive because you don't ask, it says in the book of James. So prayer changes destinies. So someone who doesn't believe and wouldn't believe if we didn't pray for them or witness to them or share with them, now suddenly believes. They were on their way to not believing, but now they believe because we have prayed and called out to him. Now, whether someone believes or not is not on me, it's on them. But I want to do what I can to give people a chance to meet the Lord, as a pastor especially. That's why we do altar calls every week <clears throat> and take the criticism for it. Go ahead. Criticize you want to. Call it easy believism if you want to. Believing in Jesus is easy. It wasn't cheap and it wasn't easy for Christ, but it is for someone who says, I want to know him and I'm now going to live for him. But you become a disciple. You lay down your life. You live for him. So, yes, God does know who's going to come to him because God knows all the responses. He knows everything we've done. He knows whether or not we're going to be praying for them or not and whether that person is going to know him or not. This is God. Um, hard for us to understand, but God is transcendent to us, meaning we cannot understand him. There's no way that our minds can understand him. All right? So, we have a question from Gloria. Uh, Gloria says, um, hello, Pastor Robert. Hello, Gloria. Can you explain Hebrews 6.4, 2 Peter 2.1, Revelation 2.5, in the light of eternal security? Or can a Christian lose their salvation after sinning and not repent? So I can't go over all of these passages. I don't have time. And it's, it's, uh, I've got to kind of keep it down to one or two in what we're doing. Um, so um, Hebrews 6.4 says it's impossible for them to repent. That's important. It's not impossible for them to be saved. It's impossible for them to repent. So like the Pharisees who rejected the Holy Spirit and got to the point where, remember, a word spoken against Jesus would be forgiven, but the unforgivable sin will not be. It's not a word spoken against the Spirit. It's rejecting the work of the Spirit. And so somehow they've crossed a line and they cannot repent. And that's a pretty heavy thing when you look at it. And then 2 Peter 2.1, I could get to that pretty quick. 2 Peter 2.1 says, um, but there were false prophets even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who brought you and bring on themselves swift destruction. So, yeah, it never says here the false teachers are saved, right? The false prophets are saved. But there were false prophets among the people, and there will be false prophets among you who secretly bring in destructive heresies, denying the Lord who bought them, and bring themselves with judgment. So it doesn't ever say they were saved and then not saved. It just says they're false prophets, and they're going to bring swift destruction on themselves by teaching false um, false heresies. Um, and um, Revelation 2.5. What is Revelation 2.5? Now I got... Revelation 2, let me go to 2.5. Um, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the first works, and I will also will come to quickly and remove your lampstand from you, unless you repent. So, this is a church. So, uh, Gloria, a church is going to be more difficult because you've got people that are repenting. It's, it's not one person. It's different people who are moving through this process. 
so you could have one person that 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 doesn't believe is this the loveless church i think yeah so so is it loveless and you have somebody else who loves and they're part of that same church and the loveless person didn't believe but the love the person who did love him did believe so in a whole they, they would be removed as being a church if they didn't love him but did that mean that the people who loved him were the same as those who didn't love him a little bit later on was there a turnover of people um I'll tell you this though, Gloria, and I've got to wrap this up because it's five o'clock. Um, but I do lean towards eternal security. That once you make a commitment to Christ, you made a genuine commitment, you're going to go, he's going to come after you if you walk away and you're going to love him. But having said that, it doesn't matter. The, the doctrine of eternal security doesn't matter. Because if, if I walk away today and no longer follow Christ, then the, the people with eternal security are going to say he was never a believer. And the people who, who don't believe in eternal security is going to say he believed and walked away. I'm a non-believer at that point. So are, are you going to come, are you going to pray for me? Are you going to come get me? So when you have someone who, is, who, who was used to be a believer and now they're not believing in him, they are unsaved. Everybody agrees they're unsaved. And this is why I say the doctrine of eternal security does not matter. Because the person who doesn't know Christ is, is away from him. All right? So thank you guys very much uh, for your questions. I see a follow-up here. Uh, Psych man, good to see you. I see, um, let's see, I see some other questions on here. Uh, Victor and um, some others. So let me take a look at your questions. I'm look, I'll look for something to begin our next Q&A with. Um, hey, stay close to Jesus. Keep short accounts. When you blow it, ask him for forgiveness. Make sure you ask for forgiveness. He says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That means that if you go to him and say, Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me. I need help. God will forgive you and God will give you help. So keep short accounts with God. We have a service in an hour from now. Uh, we'll be in Revelation chapter 18. We're going to be talking about Mystery Babylon. So we'll be talking a little bit more about what we talked about in the beginning of our Q&A. All right. So stay close to Jesus. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Uh, God's word is truth and you shall know the truth, Jesus said, and the truth shall set you free. All right. God bless you guys. I uh, love you. We will see you later on. Stay close to Jesus. I am out.